0: What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up as a substitute for us all, how shall he not in him freely give us all things? Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uh, uphold you with my righteous right hand. This evening, as we prepare uh, to return to... Zachariah and this time we are looking at the last vision the last night vision in chapter 6. Let's take a few seconds for spiritual preparation closing our eyes, bowing our heads for confession of sins, any other preparation you have and then I'll open us in prayer. <clears throat> Dear Father, we're thankful from the text of Scripture that we have here tonight. And from it we see that there is not only a future for Israel, but that you keep your promises. And if you keep your promises to Israel, we would expect you to keep them to us. And we know that you've kept your promises uh, very often throughout the Old Testament as we can see them and we also know Father that your prophecy and promise of providing a, an atonement for our sins has been concluded and in this Father we know that we have eternal life because simply by believing we have the opportunity to receive the imputed righteousness of Christ and eternal life We pray, Father, that we would live our lives with that understanding and also understand that uh, every part of Scripture that you have provided for us is for our benefit, for our knowledge, for our our ability to grow not only in our knowledge of you, but in our spiritual lives. We ask, Father, this evening as we focus on Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 6, that we'll See your character here, even as we uh, observe the vision and then also the command to crown Joshua. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Before I begin, I thought I would just read a little bit of the history that we have for uh, what seems to be a special day coming up on Saturday, and that is Earth Day. Earth Day has been around since 1970 and it is uh, the holy day for environmentalists. And uh, environmentalism has been around in the United States for many years. It's been around in the world for uh, longer than we probably care to um, acknowledge, but uh, one of the uh, nations or the governments that was really rabidly uh, environmental was uh, the Nationalist Socialist government of Germany, the Nazis. And as a matter of fact, uh, that was part of their effort for the Holocaust. They were of the opinion that not only did Uh, environmentalism extend to what we would think of the natural environment but also to individuals and humans and we just of course also observed Holocaust Day and there are many now today who are saying that well that really didn't happen that the Holocaust is just uh, something that the Jews have trumped up to gain sympathy or use it as leverage and for those people uh, they are uh, not only flying in the face of history but they're flying in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, because the Jews are his people and while they're under discipline right now he is more than capable of handling that discipline and we are to be their friends but uh, as far as environmentalism is concerned I chose an article and there I could choose many over the, the years but I chose one of my absolute favorite authors and his name is Walter Williams. Uh, he's an economist at George Mason University. And one of the things I like about him is that he's not only an economist, but he has an ability to be uh, economically, to economically apply that to his writing. He is to the point He's succinct. He doesn't waste words. And you just get the essence of what he's saying. He says each year, Earth Day is accompanied by predictions of doom. Let's take a look at past predictions. Now, anyone else would have taken a paragraph or two to develop that, but he just jumps right to it. He said, let's take a look at past predictions to determine just how much confidence we can have in today's environmentalists' predictions. I'd like to start this out by saying that uh, one of the key uh, environmentalists' uh, hobby horses is uh, anthropogenic uh, climate change. And the fact is, there is absolutely no proof that there is man-made climate change. Uh, You say, oh, but wait, I thought all of the scientists say, well, most of those people aren't scientists. They're not climate scientists. And none of them have proof unless they make it up. And that's essentially what the climate models are. Um, because they'll immediately, when you ask for proof, they'll go to their their uh, computer models, which they designed. And therefore, what they receive from their uh designed climate models is what they would expect to receive and of course the input is wrong but one of the things we've learned from those on the left is that first of all science is not really true science with them science is whatever they say it is and secondly facts don't make any difference they just make up the facts and if for some reason the facts change then they come up with other facts Or if the facts prove them to be wrong, then they come up with other facts. But here we have these predictions. In 1970, when Earth Day was conceived, the late George Wald, a Nobel laureate biology uh, biology professor at Harvard University, predicted civilization will end within 15 or 30 years unless immediate action is taken against problems facing mankind. Well, I don't know. I was unaware of this prediction in 1970, but I'm not aware of anyone thinking that our civilization was coming to an end during those 15 or 30 years. Uh, also in 1970, Paul Ehrlich, a Stanford University biologist and best-selling author of The Population Bomb. Some of you may remember that. That's when the... the uh, the fear, the the horror of overpopulation was gripping us and uh, follow on ideas about carbon footprint and uh, families that had more than what half a child uh, or any children. As a matter of fact, hard leftists don't believe that we should have children. There should be no children. Now they don't think beyond that uh, hypothesis to the next uh, position Uh, The theory then would be, if we don't have any children, well, the human race would slowly grind to a halt. But they thought it was going to grind to a halt anyhow. But he had the population bomb. He declared that the world's population would soon outstrip food supplies. In an article for The Progressive, he predicted, the death rate will increase until at least 100 to 200 million people per year will be starving to death during the next 10 years. Well, we do have people starving to death, but I don't think it's in the 100 or 200 million. And if that was happening uh, every year, uh, I think we would probably know about it. Now, we've, people have been killed in significant numbers by people like Pol Pot, and Stalin, and Hitler. Uh, but I don't think we've gotten this far. And Mao, throw another name in there for everybody. Uh, He gave this warning in 1969 to Britain's Institute of Biology. If I were a gambler, it's a good thing he apparently isn't, I would take even money that England will not exist in the year 2000. And they have no problem making these predictions because they know that no one is ever going to challenge them on them. Because the newspapers are pretty much controlled by those who support this. So one ever calls them on it. It's just like the predictions for hurricanes that are going to destroy us every year. The predictions are, in the spring, that we're going to have more hurricanes this year than uh, we've ever had. And more people are going to die. And then when we get to the fall, we turn around and look, we didn't have any hurricanes. But nobody says, I wonder why they were wrong or I wonder if we should believe them on anything else they ever say. On the first Earth Day, Ehrlich warned, in ten years, all important animal life in the sea will be extinct. Anybody ever heard of these? I mean, these are very important people, Nobel laureates, Stanford professors. But they're never held to account Despite such predictions, Ehrlich won no fewer than 16 awards, including the 1990 uh, Carfood Prize. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences' highest award. In International Wildlife, July 1975, Nigel Calder warned the threat of a new ice age. All right, this is in 1975 the threat of a new ice age must now stand alongside nuclear war as a likely source of wholesale death and misery for mankind. Now, we have articles that were printed in 1975 predicting the next ice age and that if we didn't spend billions and billions if not trillions of dollars on man-made climate change that the next ice age was going to wipe us out. Well, let me continue and see what they said here. In Science News 1975, C.C. C. Walden, Nigel Calder was the other one, now C.C. C. Walden of the World Meteorological Organization, is reported saying, the cooling since 1940 has been large enough and consistent enough that it will not soon be reversed. Well, we know that it was reversed. And during the 80s, it turned, and in 1990s, they were predicting horrific... Uh, temperature increases that would wipe us out and they're still predicting that although it was remember back in 75 it was global cooling and since that didn't work then they said well let's just call it climate change and if it goes in either direction we can still scream bloody murder and get away with it. In 2000 climate researcher David Vinner, Vinner told The Independent a British newspaper that within a few years snowfall would become a very rare and exciting event in Britain, children just aren't going to know what snow is, he said. Snowfalls are now just a thing of the past. In the following years, the UK saw some of its largest snowfalls and lowest temperatures since records started being kept in 1914. I think the Lord does that. I think he's got a great sense of humor. You know, wherever Al Gore goes and he's predicting all of these horrific events, the, ca- the events are often canceled because of uh, snow and cold weather, as he's predicting, you know, heat. In 1970, ecologist in 1970, uh, ecologist Kenneth Watt told a Swarthmore College audience, "The world has been chilling sharply for about 20 years. If present trends continue, the world will be about four degrees colder for the global mean temperature in 1990." And 11 degrees colder in the year 2000. So it really, it was really on a steep decline. This is about twice what it would take to put us into an ice age. Well, if we're in an ice age, you know, I don't know it. Also, in 1970, Senator Gaylord Nelson wrote in Look magazine, Doctor S. Dillon Ripley, Secretary of the Smithsonian Institute believes that in 25 years, somewhere between 75 and 80% of all species of living animals will be extinct. These are smart guys, by the way. These these are the people that, you know, are teaching our children. You wonder why they can't read? Because they're learning all this junk. Scientist Harrison Brown published a chart in Scientific American uh, that year, which was 1970, estimating that mankind would run out of copper shortly after 2000. Uh, Lead, zinc, tin, gold, and silver were to disappear before 1990. Erroneous predictions didn't start with Earth Day. In 1939, the U.S. Department of Interior said American oil supplies would last only for another 13 years. In 1949, the Secretary of the Interior said the end of U.S. oil supplies was in sight, having I'm surprised you even were able to get a job. Um, having learned nothing from its earlier erroneous claims in 1974, the U.S. Geo- uh, Geogra- Geological Society said that the U.S. had only a 10-year supply of natural gas. Fact of the matter, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, is that as of 2014, we had 2000, Excuse me, 247 uh, quatrillion cubic feet of natural gas, which should last about a century. And that's probably wrong because we really don't know how much is there. We're still discovering it. Ho- hoodwinking Americans is part of the environmentalist agenda. Environmental activists, you know, and this is amazing that they will admit this without fear of any repercussions. They know. That they are speaking to friendly environments and audiences. Hoodwinking, hood-winking Americans is part of the environmentalist agenda. Environmental activist Steven Snyder told Discovery Magazine in 1989 We must offer up scary scenarios, make simplified, dramatic statements, and make little mention of any doubts we might have. Each of us has to decide what the right balance is between effective and being honest. In 1988, then-Senator Timothy Wirth, uh, Democrat Colorado, said, we've got to try to ride the global warming issue. Even if the theory of global warming is wrong, we will be doing the right thing anyway in terms of economic policy and environmental policy. Well, if they're wrong, then how is that doing what's right? Americans have paid a steep price for buying into environmental deception and lies. And where we've really paid for it, by the way, is in education. Because now we have an entire generation, if not two generations, of people who actually believe the greatest threat to mankind is environmentalism. And it's not. It's, the, God is in charge of the environment. And there's not a thing man can do to change that. No matter how much money we spend, God is in charge of the seasons. And it, it just keeps coming. Even though there have been um, recent uh, scientific discoveries that show that almost all of the climate predictions are based upon lies and the manipulation of the facts and the science, it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming because it's all they've got if they want to try to control society. And the remarkable thing about this is that they're able to sell, and I just heard somebody the other day say that um, this gas attack that Saddam not Saddam Assad Assad made on his people um, with this nerve gas and the commentary was that that's not the worst gas the worst gas is carbon dioxide and what that's and and there's two things to say about that first of all that's downplaying what Assad did that's like saying well come on forget that what we really need to do is work on carbon dioxide and what I've often found this to be extraordinary is that anybody who's had just a basic high school science course knows that 80% approximately 80% of our atmosphere is nitrogen about 20% of it is oxygen. And you say, well, that's 100%. Well, just slice off less than one-tenth of 1%, and then you've got a whole realm of argon and other gases, and somewhere in there is this little bit of carbon, carbon dioxide. And the fact is, the more carbon dioxide we have, the more food we have. Plants. But we don't we don't We don't seem to be able to apply... We don't seem to be able to gain the knowledge and we don't seem to apply it. I don't know if anybody remember uh, a couple of years ago there was this um, theory that if we filled our car tires with nitrogen that that would be better for the tires. They would hold the air longer. And I remember one of my friends was telling me this saying... Well, you know, uh, I've just—I was over at this place and I got my tires filled with nitrogen, and I think he said that's going to be a lot better. And I said, "What do you think was in your tires prior to this?" Well, he had no idea. It—it it was 80% nitrogen. So he just—I guess somehow, I don't know who guaranteed him the they were able to take out the 20% oxygen but now that's a lot better it was just i'm just amazed by people who who just don't either stop to figure it out or work on but all that pardon me i'm just i lose a little bit of patience with society that is really going down the rat hole fast by the way in romans 14 uh, we're studying Zechariah, but in Romans 14, Paul said, for whatever things were written before, meaning in the Old Testament, were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of Scripture, might have hope. And that's why we study Scripture. That's why we study the Old Testament. Because Paul, who was writing the New Testament, said, don't just read Romans, don't just read this book of Romans. Romans. Study the Old Testament. Therefore, we're in verse 1 of chapter 6. Zechariah 6, 1 in the Old Testament. Zechariah. Just a couple books from the end before you get to the New Testament. And verse 1 of Zechariah 6 says, Then I turned and raised my eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze, With the first chariot were red horses. With the second chariot, black horses. With the third chariot, white horses. And with the fourth chariot, dappled horses. Strong. And my uh, New King James Version says steeds, but strong ones is probably a better and more literal translation there. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, this is the interpreting angel that the Lord had sent to Uh, help Zechariah with these visions. What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horses is going to the north country, and the white are going after them, and the dappled are going towards the south country. Then the strong ones went out, eager to go, that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, go, walk to and fro throughout the earth. See, they haven't left yet. They're eager to go. And so somebody orders them to go. And he said, go, walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he called to me and spoke to me, saying, See, those who go towards the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. Now, I'm hoping to press on from there into verse 9 and and following, but let's see what we have here in vision 8. This is our eighth vision. We studied the first seven, and they really have been in progression so that we have been building as we move from one to the other. And the last of the night visions that we saw pertain to the Lord's final judgment of the nations. And it is similar, And the the last one that we're seeing here, the last one meaning eight, not the last one, not the seventh one, but the last of the night visions here. Uh, and it's similar to the first night vision in which riders on horses patrolled the earth providing reconnaissance. And let's just take a quick look at that first vision. The first vision here in Zechariah 1, beginning in verse 7. And it says, On the 27th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Bere- Berechiah, the son of Idu, the prophet. Verse 8. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. And it stood among the, among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him, and the hollow would be in the valley, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Then I said, my Lord, what are these? And the angel talked to me about them, and I'll show you what they are, and he said they were going to go to and fro. Verse 10, the man who stood amongst the myrtle trees answered and said, these are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. And what we see here is that they were, uh, this was a picture of God's omniscience, uh, of his ever-presence, Everywhere, knowing what was going on. And it's represented by these uh, angelic forces that were keeping watch over the entire earth. Now, God doesn't need to have angels do that, but he uses them uh, because they are his messengers. And even though he already knows, he uses the angels to do that. And we understand that the Lord has his angelic forces everywhere. I mentioned some of them on Sunday. But anyhow, in this vision now that we have, uh, we have chariots, chariots with horses, and they're patrolling. Now, there is a difference here between the horses that are patrolling and chariots. And I think that um, no one makes a great deal of this, but... The horses were simply riders that were gathering information to return. But when we start talking about chariots, we're we're talking about uh, armored forces. And therefore, there is a difference here between simply going out and gathering information and then sending chariots. Chariots were not really um, designed simply for patrolling, They're designed for enforcement, for conquering. And I believe that's what we see here. We'll talk about what this means. Uh, But they are patrolling to carry out judgment. Judgment is the theme of this eighth vision. And this vision fits with the two that preceded it by detailing events at the end of days. Uh, and the way that this is detailed, first of all, is that redeemed Israel is going to be empowered. And we saw that in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. We saw that her sin was going to be removed because we saw that with Joshua in chapter 5, 1 through 11. And now we're going to see that the nations that had oppressed Israel are going to be judged. And we see that in verses 1 through 8. Uh, in later passages the book will also deal with the ultimate judgment of the nations we're going to see that in chapter 12 and also chapter 14 so in verse 1 here it says then I turned and raised my eyes and looked and behold four chariots were coming from between two mountains and the mountains were mountains of bronze uh, at the outset here Zechariah describes the vision and he sees these four chariots proceeding between two bronze mountains now uh, it's interesting I've uh, heard several uh, professors talk about this um, I've heard uh, several pastors teach this and very often they'll say that the two mountains here are mountains in Israel one of them being the Mount of Olives and the other one being the Mount of Zion Mount Zion uh, Some every now and then will say, well, one's Olivet and the other one might be uh, another mountain uh, in a similar situation within close proximity to it. Uh, Scopus is another one that's close by. And what they're thinking here is that, uh, and we'll see it in Zechariah. Zechariah, when the Lord returns, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives and the mountain is going to split in two. And so they're thinking that these are the two mountains. So one of them has to be the bronze mountain uh, of, let's say, uh, the Mount of Olives, and the other one might be the Mount Mount Scopus or something like that. Well, I don't think that that's true for either one of these. And uh, because the idea of bronze here, bronze was about the strongest uh metals they had at that time. And I think that this represents, since we're told in the text, that they're going out from the uh the really the throne room, the presence of God, I think that those bronze mountains represent heaven. And let's say the gates of heaven. They're coming out from the gates of heaven, and that's what we have here. Um, and I think that Even though Zechariah is standing and his perspective is from Israel, he's seeing this occurring from heaven. Um, The chariots are are therefore going forth from the Lord of all the earth. And therefore, I think uh, the symbolism uh, functions as mountains, gateposts outside the divine throne room. And they are similar to the bronze pillars outside of the Solomonic temple. So I think we can see that. Now, in ancient times, two-wheeled and even four-wheeled horse-drawn carts served as vehicles for transportation and for warfare. And the war chariots usually had a crew of two or three. You may remember I was discussing this uh, on Sunday. But they would have a driver, they would have an archer, and then they would have a defender who usually carried a shield to protect them. So these are... Uh, you know, again, we often see chariots with just have one driver, but that's, that was, that's usually, uh, uh, atypical even if they, those existed. Because a chariot was only as effective, I mean, sometimes they would use it to just run down people, but, uh, they were only effective if they could be, uh, have some sort of a offensive threat, like an archer or a swordsman and if they could have some defense, which was someone who was with a shield. Um, Now, also notice here in verse 2, with the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot, verse 3, white horses, and with the fourth chariot dappled horses, strong ones. And the word strong here doesn't refer just to the dappled horses, but to all of them, and we'll see that in verse 7. We'll get the word strong again which gives us a sense of power and authority. And these horses differed from vision one, from the evident purpose, and, and that appears to be judgment. So one is uh, gaining information, and the other one is ministering uh, out judgment. Now, we have these different colored horses, and whenever we get to something like this, horses... Uh, i 'm always intrigued because I grew up with horses, and we had different colored horses uh, on the farm uh, but also we would visit uh auctions periodically and whenever we 'd go to the state fair, dad uh, always wanted to go to the uh, uh into the stables into the stock barns uh Mother usually wanted to do something else. That was always usually something a little more interesting for her. But of course, we always went with Dad, and one of the places that he always went, he always went to see the cows, uh, but he always went to see the horses. And he just had an, a love for horses because he grew up using horses, plowing with them, and uh, doing other farm work. Uh, therefore, I thought what I'd do is take a quick look at these horses, red horses. When we talk about red horses, for anybody that then thinks that it was, you know, a red horse. Well, probably not quite what you think. This is, was generally known as a red horse. We would probably say it's brown. We would probably say it's beautiful. We would say it's shiny. But the fact is, uh, brownish, uh m- chestnut is another one chestnut I think is a little bit darker than that but it's you know that's how they would describe them as, as being reddish and what's really interesting one of the reasons that they would say this is that a, a, a brown horse similar to this when it is working when it's lathered up it is darker and it really does have a more it's a deeper red look to them. but this would be a red horse now we also have, the next one would be a black horse. And here, I thought, well, everybody probably knows what a black horse, how it appears, but this is a black horse. And I've often thought that black horses are probably some of the most beautiful horses that we have. They're just, because they all, uh, the uh, uh, color of a lot of horses are, uh, have a shine to them. But a solid black horse, is probably the purest color that we have. Uh, all the other colors are generally blends, but a black horse is is really one of the purer colors that we have, and they're just absolutely beautiful. Um, white horse, pure white horses they are very rare. a pure white horse. Uh, we'll get a lot of colored uh, a lot of horses. That are called white horses, but they're really not. And pure white horses are are rare. And uh, they have one of the reasons that they uh, they really have a sort of a pure look to them is that almost all pink ho- all white horses have pink skin underneath them, and that's one of the significant differences between a white horse. And a dappled horse, a gray horse, and this is very often what's known as a gray or a dappled horse. And you'll notice that the uh, the coat is sort of a blending of dark and white, or dark and gray, and When I was doing a little bit research here, I I remember growing up, and one of the things Dad would uh, we would do we'd go into the uh, stables, the the livestock barns, and uh, we'd often see a dappled horse like this. And what was really great is that in the in the light, they would very often have almost like a blue hue to them. And I remember every now and then dad said, let's go over and look at this blue horse. Well, they weren't blue. They were dappled. And I really enjoyed reading uh, this about grays. Uh, gray is the English spelling here, G-R-A-Y. The English spelling is G-R-E-Y, in case you wonder if you ever see that. But gray is a coat color of horses characterized by progressive, silvering of colored hairs of the coat so this horse was probably born more uh, uh, blackish but as the colors of the coat change or maybe even darker gray but as they change it, it takes on a look of almost white uh, coat, a white coat but it'll never ever look white and let me tell you why They're characterized by progressive silvering of colored hairs of the coat. Most gray horses have black skin and dark eyes, and therefore they look gray. The skin underneath the gray is black, the dark skin. So they have black skin and dark eyes. Unlike many uh, depigmentation genes, gray does not affect skin Uh, affect the skin or the eye color. So, it's not changing. Their adult hair coat is white, dappled, or white, intermingled with hairs of other colors. Some even, even seem to have a blue tint. People who are unfamiliar with horses may refer to gray horses as white. However, a gray horse whose hair coat is completely white will still have black skin and dark eyes. So, that's interesting. They 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 change colors, but, a, but if a, a white horse is standing beside them, you can easily tell the difference in the colors. One is definitely white with pink skin, and one is definitely gray with dark skin. Um, this is how to discern a gray horse from a white horse, what I just said. White horses usually have pink skin and sometimes even have blue eyes. Young horses with hair coats consisting of a mixture of color and gray or white hairs are sometimes confused with a roan. So, I just thought I'd give you that information because uh, whenever I bump into horses, it always takes me back to my life on the farm. Enjoyed being around them. Verse 4. Verse 4. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? The use of the title, My Lord here is a term of respect and honor and he is not uh, addressing uh, the second person of the Godhead. This is not deity. He's simply speaking to the interpreting angel and he's not attributing to him deity. Uh, There's no indication that uh, Zechariah infers that he's addressing God. This is simply the... uh, interpreting angel who is speaking to him who has been guiding him through all these visions and he has great respect for his insight, knowledge and his situational awareness of what's happening. Verse 5 And the angel answered and said to me These are four spirits of heaven Ruach Shemaim And by the way this I think the translation here of Ruach is fine It can mean Spirits, it can mean breath, or it can be wind. And what's great about this word is that very often when we're talking about spirits, we realize that they, uh, they really are like the breath of God. They're acting on God's behalf. Not only that, but they move and they act much like the wind. We don't see them, but there's an effect. And so, they, uh, these words all come and go depending on the context and they're from heaven so these are definitely messengers from god that he's seeing and that's what the interpreting angel says and the interpreting angel would probably recognize you know there's frank or there's harry or there's fritz over there you know these are the guys that he would know as angels and it says who are going out from their station before the lord of all the earth Where's their assignment? Where's their station? Where are they? uh We could say, where are they assigned? They're assigned to God. That's where they go. And that's why in Job we see that angels have convocations with the Lord. And therefore their station is here. And that's where they get their assignments. And that's where these angels were. And they are going out from that station before the Lord of all the earth. And I love the fact that Zechariah includes here Lord of all the earth, Edits here, meaning land or earth, sometimes translated world, but earth is fine here, and that tells us that the an, the angels recognize God as God. They recognize him as all-powerful and authority. And that that's the seed of all uh their guidance and direction it comes from God and you know our application here is that if angels which are beings that are higher than us recognize that then we should recognize it as well Uh, angels are much more capable than we are as a matter of fact one of them Satan thought that he would be like God but uh, he's well I was going to say he's learned uh, differently now but I'm not sure that he has uh, he still thinks he can be like God, but the angels recognize who God is. We need to as well. He is the Lord of all the earth, and we live on the earth. He is in control of the earth. So uh, Earth Day is not a waste of time, but it certainly does not have the same significance that uh, the environmentalist wackos think it does. All right, uh, verse 6 the one with the black horses is going to the north country, and the and the white are going after them. And the dappled, the gray, are going towards the south country. Now, uh, the, here we have these four chariots, and where are they going? Uh, you'd think that this would probably not be too difficult, but with theologians, anything's possible. And there are many views here. The black horses, it says... And when it says the black horse, it's talking about the chariot being pulled by the black horses. Therefore, this is the angel that is riding with these, um, riding in the chariot that is driving, uh, controlling the black horses. And they're proceeding north. And north would be the traditional invasion route into Israel of countries either from the north or from the east such as Babylon that's how Babylon would, that's how uh, Assyria got there that's how Babylon got there that's how Persia will get there so this is the traditional invasion route and uh, then we see that the the, uh, the greys proceed to the south and that's the traditional invasion route from the south which would be Egypt or uh, other nations that might come from uh, from North Africa we could say the white horses, it says, follow the black horses to the north. And we're really not told about the red horses. I'll address that in a moment. But some scholars say that if we have a slight emendation, meaning a change, to the Hebrew phrase after them, it could read to the west. Well, I don't, I don't think we need to make that emendation to that change. And while that might seem reasonable, there's no indication that there was any problem here with the original text to cause us to make that change. Therefore, if Zachariah's orientation is in Israel, and I th- think it seems to be, normally no one would accept, expect power projection from the West because that's where the Mediterranean Sea is. But they would expect power projection from the north or from the south. And you say, well, what about the east? Well, they didn't expect power projection from the east either because that's where they, this desert was. And that's why the invasion route was always from the north. They never came across the desert. And therefore, uh, anybody that's familiar with uh, ancient history, particularly that of the Levant here, uh, Mesopotamia, would realize that if you had two forces that were going out to cover all the earth, they would probably start out in two directions. One would be going south and the other one would be going north. So we have two chariots going to the north and after they get out of Israel, they're probably splitting up and they're going to cover all the earth. The other one, uh, grays, are going south because that's the other invasion route where they would split out. Now, for some reason, we don't have a reference to the red the the chariot being pulled by the red horses but I think that in light of nothing in the text and very often I'll say that if there's if we're not told then sometimes we're on shaky ground to speculate but I do believe here that we could and say that if we have two chariots going north we probably have two going south and probably the chariot pulled by the red horses also go south and I think that's worth uh, at least Postulating because in verse 7, you'll remember, it says that the strong steeds went out, eager to go that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. There, eventually, these chariots are going to cover the entire earth. So whether we know exactly how they were deployed, they're going to cover the entire earth. Verse 7, therefore. Then the strong ones, I think is the best way to, uh went out, And the word here for eager, it says eager to go, is our word in Hebrew, bachash, and it means to seek. And I think what it's saying here is the strong ones went out, but they're not going out, they're prepared to go out, is probably a better tense here, are going out, and they're seeking to go, that they might walk to and fro, throughout the earth that they might judge the earth why are they seeking to go here they're eager to go they're waiting for the Lord to send them that's the sense of this verse and he said go walk to and fro throughout the earth bring judgment on the earth so they walk to and fro throughout the earth I think that's what we see here Uh, the strong ones is a reference to all the chariots with powerful horses seeking permission to go on patrol to go out in judgment and the purpose is to bring judgment to the Gentile nations that have been cruel in their treatment of God's people then in verse 8 it says and he and I believe that this is the Lord and by the way we see that in verse 7 too we wouldn't know who he is we might have a good idea it's you know, a pronoun. We don't have really an antecedent for it because the last time we saw this was probably back in vision five. But it says here in verse eight, and he called to me and spoke to me saying, see, those who go towards the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. And I think a reference to my spirit is the Lord saying, my spirit i'm now comforted because we have judged all these people and the word here for comfort is also uh, a word very similar to the word um, that we saw before It's ruach and it means peace or we could say i have been appeased because they've brought judgment and i think that's an excellent uh, understanding of what's happening here what is he saying well the judgment that's that's coming To these nations one of the reasons it's coming to these nations is because Syria, Babylon in the future, uh, Persia we're also going to see other nations such as the Greeks and the Romans are going to oppress the Jews not only have they done it previously but they're going to do it in subsequent history and uh, they're going to pay for it and uh, they are going to we could say that uh, Babylon certainly paid for hers, and we're going to see that others have. But in the future, the nations that have oppressed Israel are going to uh, be judged. And now, as we get to, to verse 9, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives, from help." from Heldai from Tobiah from Jedidiah who have come from Babylon Jedidiah who have come from Babylon and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah the son of Zephaniah take the silver and gold make an elaborate crown and that's really crowns it's plural and set it on the head of Joshua the son of Yehoshadak, the high priest. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord, he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest, on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord, for Helman, Tobiah, for Jediah, and Hen the son of Zephaniah. Even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord, then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now, we have sort of a blend here. We've seen the last vision, but as that vision ends, we begin in verse 9, and it says, and the word of the Lord came to me. Well, the word of the Lord has been coming to Zechariah up to this point, but he's seeing it in a vision. He's awake. He's seeing it in a vision. Now, It simply says the word of the Lord came to me and I think that now that is an indication to us that the visions are over. Last vision. Now, since we've had those visions and we started with God's knowledge of what was happening on the earth and God measuring Israel, getting a measurement for Israel because he's going to rebuild Jerusalem in the future and it's going to be an even uh, greater Uh, splendor and majesty than before and we're going to have uh, a return of the priesthood we're going to have judgment on the other nations all of these things have have now come to this point where we are now seeing the finished temple and we're also seeing the Messiah well certain things are going to have to happen here one of them is They need to be obedient and build the temple now. That's sort of an indication of your faithfulness and obedience is part of God's finished promises. And uh, it sort of blends together. Uh, Therefore, when we get to verse 10, it says, Receive the gift from the captives, from Heldai, from Tobiah, from Dediah who have come from Babylon. So this appears, and we're not told everything that we would like to know, uh, and it says, and go and and do the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. As near as we know, none of these individuals are mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. So what we believe these to be are individuals who were in exile and similar to Zerubbabel and to Haggai and to Zechariah, These are individuals who have come back and they've brought silver and gold. Remember, every time that they would return, they would bring with them uh, gold and silver because that's what Cyrus later on told them to do. And they're coming back from those that the area of Babylon. And so they're bringing this and the Lord says, go get the silver and the gold and make an elaborate crown in verse 11. And it says, set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jeho- uh, Jehozadak, the high priest. And this is really interesting because um, he's setting it on the head of Joshua. Why not call in Zerubbabel? Because Zerubbabel is in the uh, the line of David. Well, because we're not crowning uh, Zerubbabel, and we're not really crowning Joshua either. We're symbolizing the future crowning of the Messiah. And the word here for crowns is plural. It's crowns. And I think there's a reason for that. I think the word crowns uh, can be seen either as sort of an assembly of Parts so that it is a truly special crown for the King of Kings, or we might say there's at least two parts here, and those two parts is the merging of the different roles that the future Messiah will play. And we have it in one of our verses one of them is the king, and the other one is the priest. He is both priest and king. As the Messiah, what's interesting is the Lord Jesus Christ actually brings together all three parts of what we might call Israel's leadership or administration in the Old Testament. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ was prophet because He is the prophet that replaces Moses in the future, the great prophet. But He is the prophet who brings who. Um, facilitates the relationship of God to man. He is also priest because he facilitates the relationship of man to God. And then he is also king. He is the king of kings. And therefore we have this idea of a plural, a plural crown. But it's not being placed on a specific king's head. Now it's being placed on Joshua's head. And we see in verse twelve, then speak to him, then speak to Joshua, saying, "Thus says the Lord of hosts." This comes from God, and Zechariah continues to to address this throughout his his uh, his prophecy. It's always from the Lord. It's from the Lord. It's from the Lord. It's from, and it's not just the Lord. It's from the Lord of hosts, because this was being emphasized to them because. They felt so hopeless and helpless. They were just uh, like pawns here uh, in the rubble of Jerusalem. But don't forget it's the God of hosts, the all-powerful God that is saying this and providing your support. Behold, the man whose name is Branch, and we've seen the word Branch already, we saw it used uh, back in verse 8 of chapter 3 and this is the root word for branch here is shoot and you can almost see it used here it says his name is branch it's a shoot this is the, the idea that uh, we are seeing the uh, now the future of this branch, this tree, this uh, future uh, power that's going to be in Israel. And right now, it's called a branch. Behold the man whose name is Branch. From his place, he shall branch out. He shall sprout out. And so, we don't have it now, but it's coming. And then it says, And he shall build the temple of the Lord this temple that you need to build now is not the future temple. The future branch, the one who is going to sprout, and we can say it's coming from the throne of God, is going to build a temple. He's going to build the temple of the Lord. And what's marvelous about this is that the temple that's being built now is being built with human hands, but in the future, this next temple, while it may have some human hands involved, is going to be a temple that the Lord builds. Verse 13. Yes, he, this future branch that's going to branch out, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory. Now, the word here for bear is the Hebrew word nasa, and it means to lift. It means to bear. It means to carry. But I think a better translation here, and I think some of the English translations do this, is that he will wear. You know, it's it's the idea of he is going to be wearing the royal robes. And when we say that, we're talking about the... The glory, as I have translated again in my New King James Version, but that's not really the best translation because when you see "glory" in the English of a translation, a Hebrew translation, you think "kavod," which really does mean the glory of God. But this is more the splendor or the majesty, and therefore, I think you can see this. Maybe a better translation would be, "What He will be clothed in splendor and majesty," Uh, and it and He shall sit and rule on his throne. He'll be dressed in majesty. He's ruling on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. So here we have this idea of a king and a priest coming together in one. And this is the Messiah. This is the future Messiah during the millennial reign. And we have the millennial temple there. Verse 14. Now the elaborate crown crowns, plural, shall be a for, now this is, now here, here's where we blend present day in Israel and the future. It says, now the elaborate crowns shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord for Helam, Helen, uh, Tobiah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Now, notice we've changed the name Hen here The uh, previous name that we had was uh, Josiah. The word hen here, some people say, well, it's a misprint. No, the word hen means grace or favor. And I think that that's sort of a, a play on words here by God the Holy Spirit, He ends this by saying, and grace or favor the son of Zephaniah. Again, we don't know any of these people. This is the only time they're mentioned. But it says, now the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple. Well, uh, uh, Zechariah was supposed to take these two crowns, let's just say they're two crowns, place it on the head of Joshua, but Joshua wasn't going to walk off with them. He's then going to take them after that ceremonial crowning and take them and put them in what? The temple. They had to finish the temple. They had to build the temple because now we're going to have this crown that's going to go in there. And that crown was going to be in this uh, rather uh, what many thought was sort of a second-rate small temple it's going to have a crown, and that crown is going to be a memorial, meaning it's going to look forward to the Messiah who's really going to come. And this temple that they're building, remember they, were, they said, go to the wood, go to the hills and get wood and bring it back down. It's going to be uh, really uh, different than the Solomonic temple that had much gold and silver and a lot of cedars, this is completely different, but it's a temple and it looks forward to the next one. So in verse 15, it says, Even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, Zechariah, to you. And this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Well, this is an incredible promise because he's saying, you build the temple now. But the future temple is going to be built from people who come from afar. Now, there's some discussion about whether that means there's going to be a lot of Gentiles and other Jews that are coming back and they're all going to work on the temple or whether they're going to come and worship in the temple and they're going to be part of the services that are ongoing there. Uh, it could be... Uh, At this point, we don't know enough about the Millennial Temple. Uh, We know that the Lord is going to build the Millennial Temple. That's not to say that he couldn't use others who were streaming back into the land because they wanted to be near the Lord. They wanted to see the Lord. They want to see this uh, marvelous ruler. Uh, So that could possibly be it. But we see that it's a universal thing for a universal God, a universal ruler. And it says that then... You shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Um, this is the Lord saying to Zachariah, Tell them that truly the Lord has come to you, given you this information, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Uh, you know this is a marvelous promise, we're going to continue to see this development as we go now from chapter six to chapter seven uh, but the, the instruction is coming from the Lord, and the Lord keeps telling them that you can trust what I'm saying. You can believe what I'm saying. And for us, in the church age, this is exactly the same thing. We can believe what the Lord is telling us. We can believe the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. It's the mind of Christ. And it is from this book that we gain understanding of the Lord. We gain uh, edification. We grow in our lives, we're able to face the uh, the challenges of every day, moment by moment, as they come at us. And if we're prepared from the Word of God, we're able to face those challenges. We're able to face the uh, the personal disasters that we have. Uh, every now and then, somebody says, "Oh, that's not too bad. You should be able to weather that." Well, to us, it's horrible. It's great. It's significant. Uh, you know, even a small pimple can sometimes ruin our day or a longer. But the fact is, it's the Word of God that uh, pr- provides for us. And uh, we can trust the Word of God. And here it is, the Word of God. Tell them that I'm the one that sent you. And this shall come to pass. The Lord's promises are going to come to pass. There's all, They're certainly going to come to pass in the future. One of the questions is, is just when. How is human history unfolding if you obey the voice of the Lord your God? If we're obedient, if we're obedient, we will be blessed. I always love Psalm 145.20 that says that those who love the Lord he will bless and the wicked he will destroy. I'm trying to put myself in the first clause, not the second clause of that verse. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this marvelous chapter in Zechariah. We're thankful that you did not leave Israel um, in a hopeless situation in Babylon and a few in the land without support. No, you were with them. And we're going to see that again in Haggai tomorrow as we see uh, you telling Haggai and the people that I am with you. And you are with us today in the church age. You're not only with us in the same way that you are with Israel, but you are indwelling us. We have the indwelling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And then as he makes a temple in our bodies, we have the indwelling of the second person of the Godhead and then father you as well. So we're never alone. It's always a group of four going anywhere. And we know that you have, you love us more than we love ourselves, and you have a plan for our lives, and it's your desire to execute that plan in our lives. It's simply a matter of us believing it and being obedient. We pray, Father, that we would learn and grow from these lessons and from the Word of God, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.